Hi, have you ever had trouble understanding the Constitution and how it laid the bedrock of our nation? Are you sick and tired of the deliberate disinformation and viral misinterpretations that go around online today? Then you're in the right place. I'm Matt Loft, and this is the Publius Podcast. Alright, so for everyone that's followed March 4th for a while, first I want to apologize. I had expectations for this, that I was going to go into this and be just as good as any of the podcasters on either side of the aisle uh, right out of the bat because I gave a few tours in college. But it's really not the same, and holding myself to that standard, I realized I was never going to produce this. So we're going to do the best that we can, and hopefully we get better as we go. Um, Today, we're going to be talking about pre-U.S. history. We're going to talk about um, the Articles of Confederation and kind of the lead-up to the Constitution, and we'll even probably, we're going to try and make it through the preamble if we don't run out of time. So let's go ahead and get started. So when we think about the United States and the original country and how everything was set up, it started a long time before. Companies, nobles, and religious refugees founded the colonies, each independently, to have their own claim in the New World. They coexisted, but they really weren't connected. They were independent, all paying lip service to the Uh, king in England. So imagine uh, like a franchise. So when someone sets up a Chick-fil-A, for example, obviously they get all of the corporate branding, they have to follow certain rules from corporate, but for the most part it's their business. They're going to succeed or fail on their own. And that's the same thing that the colonies were. One Chick-fil-A doesn't necessarily compete with another Chick-fil-A, but they would like to get their business and be the better Chick-fil-A, assuming they're not owned by the same person. Same thing for the colonies. They wanted to have the best trade agreements. They wanted to have the best production of materials. And so that's how their relationship kind of existed. So over time, the British Crown and Parliament really began to take the colonies for granted. And they wanted to hatch, uh, to tax them more harshly because of the French and Indian War. There's a lot of great videos online about it, but the basic premise was there were some skirmishes going on in the North eastern part of the United States, kind of on the Canada border, and the British were like, yeah, let's go and hold, let's get all into it, we're going to declare war on France and like take a whole bunch of other colonies, all because we started it with these skirmishes on the American borders. And then it cost them a whole lot of money, and so they said, hey, American colonists, guess what? This whole thing started to defend you, so how about you pay up? They weren't really the best fans of that because, I mean, obviously... It was this tiny little piece of your massive war. Why do we own the whole bill? And the colonists really didn't have any say in this. They didn't have a representation in Parliament. All they got was, hey, the king says this, Parliament says this, you do it or else. And so this started with the Stamp Act in 1765. So today's equivalent would be like, imagine every piece of paper you use for any commercial purpose needing to be notarized has to be like officially sealed that this is that document and pay a tax on that. For some things like wills and deeds, I mean, that makes sense, right? But we still have government regulation requirements on these today. But we're talking pamphlets, magazines, playing cards, all having to have this governmental seal of approval that the tax had been paid. It's really not fair. And so the colonists really started to kind of buck back. There was some black market trading going on, trying to get around it. And that caused the tax to not raise enough revenue. So Britain decided, we're going to talk to this guy. His name's Charles Townsend. um, And he recommended a few taxes on things that the colonists solely import from Britain. 
So things like china, things like glass, paper, paint, and tea. And these led to massive protests because they had no say in the government and felt rightly that it was unfair that they should be consistently taxed without any sort of say-so. And as the protests and boycotts of British goods grew, the number of troops Britain stationed in the colonies grew. Before the French and Indian War, there really weren't that many troops. They had their own little militias to protect themselves. But since then, Britain has decided to maintain a standing army there, which, if you can imagine, really doesn't feel the best for the colonists. You know, all of a sudden there's these troops there that they have no control over. They have no say. Britain could tell them to do anything they wanted and they would do it. And so this really started to make the colonists even more unsteady. And so as a good note for people advocating, you know, for these types of speech regulation and taxes today, is that every time you give the government power to do something in your life, you only have so much control over how they execute it and how later politicians use the precedent that you set by allowing them to have that power. You literally could end up when someone on the other side gets into power with the government's guns literally pointed in your direction. So that's just something to remember every time you give the government power. But back to 1770, the protest grew and the number of soldiers, it reached a flashpoint. So a group of protesters were throwing rocks and snowballs, heckling British soldiers um, stationed in Boston who were getting a little nervous. It was, I mean, similar to some of the riots that are going on now. It really wasn't the best way for the colonists to express their, dis their you know, distrust, but they were attacking them. And the British soldiers, not knowing what to do, fired into the crowd and killed five American colonists and wounded several others. All this did was it drove a wedge further between the colonists because people started putting out the propaganda pamphlets. They started showing that the British soldiers were ordered to fire on them when really it was they responded to a crappy situation. Um, ironically, protesters were uh, protesting the Townsend Acts and all of the improper taxes. And the same day in Great Britain, the taxes were repealed. Although the colonies wouldn't know this for a couple months because you know, they had to wait on the news to come over on a ship. It's not like today where we can instantly know, uh, hey, Congress decided something or didn't decide something. That, you know, they had, the information lag was so great in that day. So after this, you know, people in Boston really started to distrust the British troops even more. And so in 1773, as part of a protest of the tea tax that was still in place, um, a group of three British tea ships were coming into Boston Harbor and the governor of Massachusetts Bay told them, hey, the tea has to be unloaded and you have to pay the taxes, even though there were hundreds of protesters there saying, we don't want the tea, we don't want to pay the taxes on it. It's not fair, you can't force us to buy tea. Um, and the governor didn't care. You know, He was put there by the British and was very adamant that he was gonna do whatever the king said. So that night in protest, a group called the Sons of Liberty, who had organized many of the protests up to this point, uh, dressed up as Native Americans as tons of people watched on and dumped the tea off of the three ships into the harbor. It's known as the Boston Tea Party. Uh, it caused mixed reactions in the American front privately, but it galvanized the colonists because it showed they did have the power to fight back against Britain. Um, some of the more established and elite uh, members who actually fought in the revolution, even up to George Washington, really didn't like the tactics used because it's not... It's not the upper hand way to protest. It's not taking the high road. It's not the moral 
high ground and place you really want to be arguing from. However, it was successful in getting the colonists to rise up. So they didn't, they didn't speak out on it um, harshly. And the reason for that is they wanted the taxes to end too. They just didn't want to go about it in the same way. So back to kind of Britain's response here, they got really angry, obviously. Their tea had been, had been ruined, so they lost the revenue on the tea, they lost the revenue on the taxes. So they decided that they were going to punish the city of Boston and the greater Massachusetts colony. So what did they do? They um, closed the Boston seaport with naval vessels until the city repaid the damages from the Tea Party. So that's kind of a problem because blocking off the seaport would have destroyed the entire Boston economy. So much of the economies of each colony was built around trade with Britain since that's what most of them were founded to do. They were business people who were like, let me go get some resources, trade it back home, and make money on the process. So first of all, they gave them a command that was basically going to be not able to be met. Uh, they took away what self-government existed in Massachusetts and replaced it uh, with a crown-appointed governor and made his council crown-appointed as well instead of voted on by the citizens. They made British officials immune to any criminal prosecution in Massachusetts. So soldiers and officers could be allowed to get drunk, act disorderly, steal things, even commit, commit heinous crimes like murder and rape without fear of prosecution. They even made Massachusetts citizens pay for the lodging for the troops that were stationed there. If that's not enough, to also bring them into their homes. Yes, people who could do all these unspeakable acts without fear of prosecution had to come into citizens' homes. And the other colonies up to this point had acted like separate entities who took care of themselves, like we talked about. They were their own independent franchises. They didn't really care about each other all that much. So they thought, we're going to make an example out of Massachusetts. And the other colonies would not put up any resistance. Uh, they'd fall in the line to avoid the same fate. But it caused the opposite effect, as we all know, and the groundwork for the strange experiment that's been the United States was born. So... The American response, uh, there was a ton of public outrage, but at the same time, I mean, just imagine um, if someone told you you had to denounce your U.S. citizenship right now because you were mad about what the government did. You may be really angry, and you may be outraged, and rightfully so, but that doesn't necessarily mean you're ready to stop being an American. And that was the same way a lot of the colonists felt about Britain. Uh, but they still had to respond to what happened in Boston. So they got a bunch of delegates together in 1774 to send a declaration of rights over to Britain. And the 2021 version of that would be, we really want to be your subjects, but we need some representation. We need to be able to consent to whether or not there's a standing army in the colonies. And our colonists need the same rights as British citizens to life, liberty, property, assembly, protest, and trial by jury. By the time they reconvened in 1775 to kind of re-meet and see, okay, what was the outcome of the letter we sent, skirmishes had already broken out in Boston, Lexington, and Concord, Massachusetts. These were later known as the shots heard around the world uh, that marked the beginning of the American Revolution. And the beginning of a rough century for Imperial Europe, because as more colonies around the world heard of the success of the Americans, they rose up as well. So... Let's talk about, you know, we're in 1775, the Continental Congress is reconvening. They realized, okay, these Minutemen, these militias are not going to be able to protect our citizens from the British Army. So we got to start up an army. we got to have some kind of strategy going to all this. And they hired George Washington. 
let's pause and say this guy was awesome. The guy showed up in his military uniform, like every day for a month, uh, when they knew they were going to be starting an army and selecting a general, because he wanted a job. And on top of that, he made plenty of money from Mount Vernon, so he served without pay. And so he was like rip-roaring, ready to go, ready to fight to be an American. You know, at the same time, this Congress started printing money to pay for the army. They set up foreign relations, sent out ambassadors to different countries. Uh, but even though they now had this semi-functioning government to call, the call to revolution was still not strong enough. Like, they wanted to fight back the British and just keep them from hurting citizens, but they weren't ready to completely fight for independence. So they decided to appeal to, you know, good old King George, you know, this guy, and directly sent him this letter, commonly known as the Olive Branch Petition, and they sent it over to say, you know, in the 2021 version, hey, my guy, my king, like we said before, love being British, love the British heritage, tea, awesome, not dirty brown water. Kind of dirty brown water. Um, but we really want this thing not to continue to escalate with the whole troops in Boston thing. So can we, like, just call a truce and talk about how we can coexist? Like, help me, help you, help me, help you, help me, help you. And we'll pay the taxes and do all the things you want. If you just give us some basic rights and some people in Parliament so that we've at least got some say in the decisions that are made for us. Like everyone else on your island gets. Well, they may as well have declared independence right there in July 1775 and made the 25, 50, 75-year anniversaries of when the country started that much easier to count because that is how the king received the letter. He didn't even really read it at first. Well, let me rephrase that. He, when he heard about a letter coming from the colonies, he got so angry and said, you know what, screw it. I'm declaring them an open rebellion. Give me some Hessian mercenaries, which is from an area of Germany, to go put them in line. He didn't even want to send his own troops. He wanted to send soldiers just that he bought and paid for to go just kill them. It wasn't like it was other British people who had to really question, hey, I'm killing other British, you know, my fellow citizens. No, he sent mercenaries who were just sent there for one reason, to kill anyone who opposed the king. And add the issues to that are still happening in Boston to the Hessian mercenaries on shore and a great deal of American colonists all of a sudden felt like they weren't really British anymore. I mean, is that how they would treat anyone on the island? No. And the problem was that the colonists knew nothing other than British rules, so they didn't know how to mentally cope with what independence really meant at a broad level. And then comes Thomas Paine. So this guy was a hardcore independence guy. He sent out pamphlet after pamphlet named Common Sense, and it hit newsstands across the colonies in January 1776. He called for independence from Britain and for the colonies to set up their own nation in a Republican form of government. Small r. Um, and, you know, he was dismissed at the time by many elites who had a bit of a role to play in setting up that Republican government. You know, guys like John Adams, Thomas Jefferson, who wrote the Declaration. But these, these critiques, they didn't hold much water, especially not with the broad citizenship. And the reason for that is they really were common sense. You know, why would a foreign government help them out with the British while they still declared loyalty to the British crown and paid British taxes? At the same time, Britain was treating them like a hostile threat, so cozying up afterwards with some new rights and respect, if there was going to be major conflict, didn't seem possible either. 
So you can't get foreign help, so you're stuck dealing with this stuff on your own. And on top of that, it's not going to end well one way or the other for the colonies unless they go all the way. So finally, in June 1776, Richard Henry Lee put forward a motion that was accepted by the Congress to declare independence. So while we know Jefferson was the main writer, he had four other men around him, including Ben Franklin and John Adams. And the document was really difficult to write. And I don't mean because if anyone's read it, it was so beautiful and any of that. That's all true. But it had to reach a broad group of people. They had to make a point to the British that this was a point of no return. We're going to become a nation, come hell or high water, this is what's happening. And they had to convince Americans who read it to join the cause. And Americans, for the most part, would not have been super educated. So you couldn't write it in extremely flowery language. You had to have things in there that were going to be a call to action. And they had to convey to the Americans that whatever government they were going to build was going to be built on a foundation of rights and morals. Things like all men are created equal. Things like unalienable rights to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. You know, we're a country of imperfect beings, so we haven't always lived up to these ideals in every aspect. However, it's still the promise of America that our goal from the founding has been to live out these ideals. And so we set up, and you'll see we set up the government to work towards them in every way. And then the last thing the uh, Declaration of Independence had to do was it had to tell other countries the crap that had been going on in the colonies from Britain. And so we, they wanted to show how mistreated they were. So please come help us. Please lend a hand. We're going to do this on our own. We want to be your friends. We want you to be our friends. Help us out. And these men were certainly not perfect. And no one would claim to be. And you'll never hear that from anyone here at March 4th. However, they wanted to give it their own shot at governing because they felt that if the government knew its own fallibility, if it was built by the people, for the people, on the basis of Scripture, not because Scripture divines someone to be king, whether or not you can even call that Scripture, they wanted to build something better than the world had ever seen, a new notion that the people had the right to rule. And they were declaring independence for a promise of a nation that took us a long time to realize for every citizen. You know, it's important to remember with history, to quote Washington's character from Hamilton, you know, let me tell you what I wish I'd known when I was young and dreamed of glory. You have no control who lives, who dies, who tells your story. The only reason we consider these men heroes today and great thinkers is that America won the war and that Americans wrote the story. You know, they committed the highest crime possible under British law by advocating for the overthrow of the government's rule in the colonies and should have been punished to the harshest extent by the British had they won. You know, today, you know, especially over 2020, we saw tons of calls for the Constitution to be abolished, uh, for the federal government to be completely overthrown and reconstructed. And it's important to remember that while we have protections for our rights and freedoms uh, of speech, press, assembly, and petition the government, these protections don't extend to calls for revolution or for the government to be overthrown. That's called sedition. These rights exist so that you can criticize the government and you can work within the power structures to be able to make change through all these legal channels, through protesting, through doing things in a peaceful manner, but they're not blanket approvals to call for the removal of the current system. That's not um, something that the founders believed in. They had to do it because the government was so bad and they were willing 
to risk being hung, to risk being killed for their beliefs. So now back to the Declaration. You know, while we think of it at this point as a fairly unified group, you know, whenever you study American history and as the states we see them as today, um, it's more accurate to still think of them as those franchises. However, they were franchises that were wanting to work together to put out all the other franchises in the area. So imagine back to our Chick-fil-A example that the owner of one Chick-fil-A and the owner of another knew that if they worked really hard at their marketing, they could kick McDonald's out of the area and maybe add a new Chick-fil-A in its place. And so they were still wanting to operate as their own businesses, but they wanted to work together to achieve a common goal of making things better for all Chick-fil-A's in the area. So the Declaration, in order to show this and to talk to these different uh, groups of people, was broken into three sections. The first was an intent to create a new government in America. So that was, hey, we're leaving, we're going to set up a government, we believe in these things. The second was all their grievances with the king. So, hey, you can't tax us. Hey, you can't just uh, have mercenaries stay in our houses. Hey, this isn't right to not give us any say in anything. And then the last was the ties, the official dissolution of ties with Britain. So the official, all right, we're setting up a new government. We're pretty mad at you. And in case you didn't get it the first time, Britain, we are gone. In another episode, we'll go more in depth on the Declaration, but since we're just trying to set the stage today to begin our discussion of the Constitution, let's just focus on the last section of the Declaration. We, therefore, the representatives of the United States of America in General Congress assembled, appealing to the Supreme Judge of the world for the rectitude of our intentions, do in the name and by the authority of the good people of these colonies, solemnly publish and declare that these united colonies are and of right ought to be free and independent states, that they are absolved from all allegiance to the British crown, and that all political connection between them and to the state of Great Britain is ought to be totally dissolved, and that as free and independent states, they have the full power to levy war, conclude peace, contract alliances, establish commerce, and do all of the other acts and things which independent states may have right do. And for the support of this declaration with a firm reliance to the protection of the divine providence, we mutually pledge to each other our lives, fortunes, and our sacred honor. So it's important to remember in this context a state would be a synonym for a country, like they wanted each to be their own independent beings. And as you notice, they speak of the states in plural rather than speaking as a singular Congress that speaks for the states. This is because, like we talked about, they're, they're willing to work together to write this, but they're still their independent franchises. They still want to end up their own independent companies uh, when this whole thing is over. Now, to paraphrase Washington's character from Hamilton again, fighting and winning are easy, governing's harder. To survive with that royal influence for the first time and to create from thin air a government that was better to replace it is a challenge that few in history have had the opportunity to face. Um, each state went about it a little bit differently as they worked through how to have a strong enough executive to get things done but restrain him or her so that such that you can't overrun their uh, individual liberties. Um, but at the multi-state level, they realized if they're going to fight this together, they really need to have some kind of compact that binds the states loosely together. 
um, there was a war going on, and so the only leadership was a group of delegates leading this informal Continental Congress um, that the states had only tangentially agreed to by sending delegates. And like I said, there's a war going on. They didn't have time for niceties and great political thought and the philosophical thought about the fallibility of man and how to prevent government from bending to the selfishness of one man and not running over people's rights, but still having enough power to get stuff done. They didn't have time to think through that. All they had time to do was get something formal on paper that roughly represented what they wanted and that they were already doing. Thus, the Articles of Confederation were born. The only major political thought into the Articles was bind the states, prevent government overreach at all costs. States are as independent as they can possibly be. That's it. Now, not, hey, how are we going to raise money to pay for this army, feed our troops, do anything of value? Uh, because this government they formed was basically worthless, other than my favorite article, and what should be your favorite article too, uh, Article 1 of the Articles of Confederation, the style of this confederacy shall be the United States of America. Why I did that accent? I don't know. Uh, it just felt right. And yes, I said style. It's spelled S-T-I-L-E, which is an older spelling of the word style, uh, which had an old definition that meant the name. Please see our preamble post for a further rant on the English language and how it changes, because it's quite frustrating as someone living in 2021 trying to read all these documents and figure out what they meant when they used words that seem to not make any sense at all. Anyway, off the soapbox for a minute. It set up each state to be able to govern itself how it wants. So, by it, I mean the Articles of Confederation. Uh, set up each state to be able to govern itself how he wanted it. Uh, just pretty much said, hey, as long as y'all don't tax other states, don't have a standing army in peacetime, don't declare war unless you're explicitly attacked, or have your own treaties with foreign countries, we're good. Anything else, all your power, it actually takes three quarters of you to agree to do anything at the federal level, so that's also cool too. Yeah, the best part, for those who study politics who have, or who have ever voted in a class election in school, uh, they needed three quarters of the states to agree to be able to do anything, which basically never happened on any issues of substance, like being able to raise taxes to pay for anything. So needless to say, there were money problems right from the start. They had no power to tax, like I keep saying, and they couldn't get nine states to agree to adding the power to tax. The Articles barely helped the country survive the revolution, and about four years after the Treaty of Paris uh, was signed, the people had, had enough, and they called for a convention to replace the Articles with a form of government which better suited their needs. To go back to my earlier point about treason, this is not the same thing. This is not rioting and calls for fighting and a new order to be established and overthrow the Articles. It was a peaceful call for a recognition that what they had in place was not working and the amount of incremental changes needed to make it work was not worth getting together to try to find a, to do it. Like, fine, you can make a whole bunch of incremental changes to get from the Articles to the Constitution we now know and love, but to get nine states to agree to every change along the way incrementally was not going to work. It was going to be much easier to get a bunch of people from the states to sit down, come up with a new idea, and if everyone agreed, it replaced the articles. If not, it didn't. And so there was really no harm, no foul, you know, as they did the convention. 
So it was death. It was a lot different than just calling for it to be overthrown. But these calls, you know, uh, form the Constitutional Convention. So now that we've given a not as brief as I've hoped history of the founding, so that we can have context of what a state meant and what and why the founders believe they what they believed, we can start to work our way through understanding the Constitution. First on the docket is the preamble. So the preamble goes, we the people of the United States, in order to form a more perfect union, establish justice, ensure domestic tranquility, provide for the common defense, promote the general welfare, and secure the blessings of liberty to ourselves and our posterity, to ordain and establish this Constitution for the United States of America. So pretty much everyone in the United States has heard these words, and they probably learned them in grade school or high school, but what do they really mean? And what even is a preamble anyway? It's not really a word we see all that often. Um, for those of us that aren't lawyers, it's a completely unfamiliar term. That, at least for me, I only associated with the Constitution. Um, so I had to look it up. Uh, so the definition of a preamble is an introductory statement, especially the introductory part of a Constitution or statute that usually states the reasons and intent for the law. So based on this definition, we can gather that the framers included this to help set context for the rest of the document. So that when you read it, it's like, these are our goals, and here's how we're going to do it. So imagine it like a goal statement at the top of a paper, uh, or a thesis statement. Hey, this is what I'm going to do, here's how I'm going to do it. And when we look at our nation's history and the events surrounding all of this, we know that the Founding Fathers cared a great deal about context. And as you can tell from the time we've spent discussing context so far, before even making it to the Constitution on a constitutional podcast, I care about the context as well. Three of the four founding fathers, under a pseudonym um, that the writers here at March 4th share, wrote over 85 essays to defend the Constitution and add context. So it makes it really important that this is something that we're trying to do and is often overlooked in the area of constitutional law but it really gets to the intent of what the founders were trying to do. So when you're trying to understand, okay, why did they include this clause? What does this clause really mean? You can look at it through the lens of the preamble and through the history at the time to be able to understand what you're doing. So let's start, and we're going to go through this clause by clause as quickly as I can. So we're going to start with we the people. So now that we know what this preamble is, um, they could have started it, a lot of ways. They could have been like in Congress assembled like the article started or some kind of narrative like when in the course of human events like the Declaration. But they chose we the people. Those are the first words of the Constitution. Why? Because the founders realized that the power of free government comes solely from the people. They believe there's no divine right to rule, that the people had rights that pre-exist government that come from their creator and that they have to willingly give up a small portion of that liberty in exchange for safety and organization through government. Next up is in order to form a more perfect union. As we just discussed, there's already a union called the United States of America that existed in 1787 when this was being written, and that it was definitely less than perfect. They knew that creating a perfect government was out of the question because they were Christians, and they believed and knew that humans are imperfect beings. Um, so what they tried to do was create a government that pitted self-interested humans against each other in such a way that checks and balances were created 
to ensure that one person couldn't overrun the whole system. So yes, the gridlock in DC that makes it hard to do anything, including getting out stimulus packages, some of that was built in. Some of that has been added with party politics that got added later, but the majority of it was built in so that things didn't just fly through without enough debate to make sure there was a broad consensus on them. Um, and it's been that way since 1789, and it was designed to protect us from ourselves. Next up is to establish justice. So remember those troops who couldn't be tried? That's not going to happen in our country. On top of that, they wanted to standardize jury trials and due process because they weren't common in Great Britain. Most disputes in Great Britain were handled by a magistrate with an amateur knowledge of the law. It'd, like me be, it'd be like me putting on a robe and a powdered wig and having people present evidence to me. I've read the Constitution. I've read a lot of the U.S. Code. I've read tons of the Federalist Papers. I've read them a couple of times. But I'm not a judge. I shouldn't be dealing with every intricacy of the law, but that's how it worked in Great Britain. Larger disputes did get to go to a jury trial, but that was made up of elites from the royal class, so when commoners went on trial, they were kind of presumed guilty instead of innocent. And that's not what we wanted for our new nation. Next up, they wanted to ensure domestic tranquility. That's a fancy way of saying they wanted to be safe at home. They wanted both to restrain the government, to stop and prevent things like quartering soldiers and illegal searches and seizures, because they believed in individuals' rights to feel safe in their own home. But they wanted to empower the government to put down riots and insurrections that threaten the citizens' safety. So the whole goal was to be, for citizens to be safe in their own homes. Next up is to provide for the common defense. So as we talked about, without a great way to raise funds to pay for an army, the Articles of Confederation gave the nation no real power to defend itself, past the volunteers who chose to fight in the revolution, um, so they wanted this new constitution to give them that power. They knew that with a minor skirmish, uh, like the one that happened in 1812, just a few years later, uh, the, the colonies would have been broken up under the Articles. So they, and they knew that that was coming, either from the Native Americans or from the British again, so they needed to bind themselves more strongly together so that they could defend themselves. Next, they wanted to promote the general welfare. As discussed above, the Articles of Confederation left the national government with no real power in relation to the states, and the states were limited in their power to their own borders, so policy disputes and state disagreements had no set mediator except for this Congress who needed three-quarters of states to agree to make any decision. So promoting the general welfare is meant to, at a national level, saying that this government is supposed to handle issues not best addressed by any individual state like nationwide interstate infrastructure, tariffs, other issues that the states can't legislate for themselves because it may pit one state against another. Up next is to secure the blessings of liberty. So if you take all of the things we've talked about so far, uh, establishing justice, promoting the general welfare, uh, providing for the common defense, all of that are the blessings of liberty. You add on top of those the rights that they believe pre-exist government, such as the right to life, liberty, the pursuit of happiness, and the things they later added in the Bill of Rights. And that's what they're talking about when they say the blessings of liberty. They're talking about a, the blessings of having a government that recognizes all that, that doesn't start with a divine right to rule. So that's what they're talking about when they say, we want to secure and push all of this forward so that our children can inherit 
the principles and the government that we work so hard to set up. And lastly, we have do ordain and establish this Constitution for the United States of America. So when I wrote the original post on the preamble and as I was doing my analysis, I about left this off because it seemed like, okay, this is just the end of the preamble. There's nothing really special here. But the more I looked at it, I, I think the wrap-up is essential to discuss because of the specific words they chose. Specifically, I want to focus on the word ordain. Ordain is typically used in legal documents to order or decree something officially. However, its other meaning is to confer holy orders, like making someone a, a priest. I believe they chose this word intentionally because of its double meaning. So the founders believed heavily in the separation of church and state from the perspective of they don't want the government in their church like the king was the head of the Anglican church. And they wanted people to be, have the freedom to practice whatever religion they wanted. But as, as for the church playing a role in government, it's clear they infused much of the original documents with Judeo-Christian principles and values. For example, in the Declaration of Independence, they wrote, We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their Creator uh, with certain and unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And as you can see as the text pops up here, they specifically capitalize the word Creator in the way that Christians and Jews capitalize the words describing God because they're a proper noun, they're talking about a person, or that it actually exists. Knowing this, I believe they hoped not only to ordain and decree this constitution, but to ordain and confer holy orders on this constitution so that it had a holy mission of preserving the rights and liberties that they believe were endowed to the citizens by God, their creator, whether or not the citizens believed in the same God as them or not. They believe that God still loved them whether or not they believed or not and that they still conferred these rights just by the fact they were human beings. Now, this doesn't mean a theocratic form of government. They wanted those in elected positions to act with their constituents' best interest and personal values, no matter their religion. It, what, we're not saying everyone must be a Christian. In fact, they have specific things in the Constitution to say there can't be a religious test. Uh, all they wanted was for people to act with their own morals and values, and so they were acting with theirs. And like we've said, these guys weren't perfect. We know that there was slavery going on. We know that people were being mistreated. It took a long time for the country to be able to extend this to its logical end. However, if you look at the path that the country was set on, all of these things were inevitable. Everything had to happen in the way that it did to be able to break the mindset at the time and to be able to set it up for long-term success. Okay, so we've covered a lot of material today on the context that surrounded the writing of the Constitution. In our next episode, we're going to talk compromises, censuses, and the United States House of Representatives. If you enjoyed this episode, and honestly, even if you didn't, please remember to like and subscribe. The Publius Podcast is available on YouTube, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and anywhere else you listen to podcasts. March 4th blog is available on Facebook and Instagram at, at March 4th for the Constitution and on March 4th for the Constitution.com. All of these are linked below in the video or podcast description. 
please leave any comments and feedbacks in the section down below and send any feedback or suggestion for future shows to publius at march 4th for the constitution.com don't forget to share us with your friends when we reach a thousand followers on our instagram or facebook page we'll be doing a drawing for a 50 dollar amazon gift card we're giving out our 25 dollar amazon gift card this week because we just reached 100 followers on our Facebook page. Thank you all so much for all the sharing that you've done so far. The Publius Podcast is written and produced by Matt Loft and is a March 4th production. Copyright March 4th, 2021.